Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, I do want to say hello to those of you who are watching online. I hope everyone's having a good weekend so far. Um, to, to start off here, I thought I would share with you this weird story I came across. You guys like weird stories, right? Uh, I'll share with you this weird story, and it's about a guy who was walking on the Golden Gate Bridge. And here's what he describes. He says, I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over to him, and I said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Well, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant, me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you Original Baptist Church of God or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1879, or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1950. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off. <laughs> All right, I know I just pulled a Mike Failer there. Um, and yes, that was a joke, but uh, according to GQ magazine, that is the 44th funniest joke of all time. And I don't know about that. Like, it's funny, but it ain't that funny. Um, but what the joke does is I think it highlights, in a very painful way, a character of Christians and just how prone we are to disunity. Certainly, as the joke illustrates, this has been true for many, many years for Protestant uh, Christians. Um, in fact, most current stats that I've come across says that uh, right now there are over 45,000 Protestant denominations worldwide. Now, I think as Christians, we would agree there are legitimate reasons for there to be different denominations and church networks and, and all of that. Uh, although I think if we're being honest, 45,000, that seems a bit much, right? Like that's a, that's a large number of different denominations. Now that kind of division and that kind of disunity in the body of Christ is a big issue. And honestly, it's one that I, it, unfortunately, it's probably not going to be solved until Jesus returns. Although there has been significant progress in recent years with things like the NAE, which is National Association of Evangelicals, um, the Gospel Coalition and other things like that that have sought to bring groups and, and people together. However, though, that kind of disunity, that kind of division is not the main thing I wanna look at this morning. Because as I already said, I think sometimes there are legitimate theological reasons for there to be different churches and different denominations. No, the type of, uh, the, the issue, the type of disunity that I wanna talk around uh, this morning is around what Paul in Romans 14 calls disputable matters or opinions. Now, as I think about Limworth and as I think about the last year or so, this is the very category which is posing a threat to our unity as a church. What I mean by that is that by and large, the tension or the relational conflict that either has occurred or could potentially occur in our church, uh, it's not around typically core biblical doctrines, but instead it's around disputable matters or opinions. And you know, we actually warned you of this possibility uh, when we talked about unity at the beginning of the summer. If you remember there, our first outdoor message, Pastor Chris gave a message on unity and we said there, look guys, we are entering a period uh, in, in our, our culture right now and even in the church, where, which is full of disunity landmines. 
There's COVID and all of the potential disagreements and opinions about how to deal with that, whether it has to do with masks or social distancing or government mandates or whatever. Uh, as well, we talked about the fact that in our nation right now, there's significant racial tension and flashpoints that have popped up and will continue to pop up. And with that, there's a variety of opinions over how to deal with it or how to define even certain words and terms and issues. And then if that wasn't enough, we warned you that with this year being an election year, uh, there was gonna be the potential for disunity and conflict around politics. Now, I would love to be able to stand up here and tell you that after Chris gave that message, we as a church just sailed through the next several months holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Um, but I don't know if that's accurate. And now don't misunderstand me. I don't wanna oversell this or paint some desperate picture of our church right now. That's simply not true. I mean, there's not been any major conflict, any major blowups or anything like that. But again, I think if all of us are being honest, there's been some tension. There's been maybe even some quarreling. And again, whether it's been over mask wearing and how to handle COVID or whether it's been over politics and the election, there's been to some degree, some disunity. And so because of that, and because we're in a series on the church, we thought it would be a good idea to look at this issue once again, to look at unity from the scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about it. And the reality is, is that the Bible has a ton to say about it. You know, I, I said in our little teaser that we sent out on Friday that, you know, we're living in unprecedented times. Like how sick are you of hearing that phrase? But, but one thing that's not unprecedented about the times we are living in is that there's disunity in the church, right? Like, the, and then the reason we know that is because again, as I already said, the Bible has a ton to say about this. And the reason the Bible has a ton to say about this is because the early church themselves struggled to say, to stay united. And so if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you now to go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 14. Um, this is where we'll be primarily camped out and uh, we'll have some of the verses up here, but not all of them. So it might be good to follow along on the Bible app or, or in your actual Bible. Um, and so uh, before we jump in though, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather in your presence. Father, I pray that you would be pleased to send your spirit to come to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are able and willing to obey. And so, Lord, would you guide our time this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the outline for uh, our message this morning, we'll be, we'll be looking at a couple questions and trying to answer them. Uh, the first question is, what does Christian unity look like, and how do we strive for it? And then secondly, we'll look at why strive for it, or in other words, why fight for unity? And so to help maybe set some context here before we look at these questions, let me just read the first six verses in chapter 14. It says this, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One's person's faith, uh, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Boom to all you vegetarians out there. No, just kidding. Uh, that's not exactly what it's saying. Um, Verse three, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. 
Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. All right, well, let's stop right there. And let me just try to explain a little bit about what's going on here in this church at Rome. So in these first six verses, Paul is laying out basically what the issue is uh, that is occurring in the Roman church that's causing disunity. And as he makes clear there in verse one, what they are arguing about falls into what Paul labels as disputable matters or what the ESV says is, uh, calls it opinions. Now, what exactly is the issue here and who are the weak and who are the strong? Well, we can't be exactly sure. And in fact, Bible scholars and commentators have offered several different uh, theories as to who uh, exactly is made up in these two groups. But the most compelling theory, I think anyway, uh, is that what you have is you have some Jewish Christians who are in the church at Rome and these Jewish Christians are still trying to observe the Mosaic food laws and also the Jewish ceremonial days. And because of that, they are running into conflict with another group, another segment of the church who doesn't see those things as necessary or as binding anymore. And so because of that, there's some division, there's tension and disunity in the church. And so with that as a very, very quick summary, a, a, you know, just a flyover, and sort of with that as a backdrop, let's look at this first question now, which is, what does Christian unity look like and how do we strive for it? Well, I think the first thing that we see here in this passage is that Christian unity doesn't mean that we have to agree on everything. You see, I think we wrongly assume sometimes that you can only be united with someone if you agree on every single matter. But, but I mean, look, if that was the bar for unity, you and I could never be united with anyone. I mean, I don't know what your relationships are like, but even with my wife, I don't agree or we don't see things exactly the same way. Now we have a lot in common, like I think unusually a lot in common, maybe compared to other couples, but even still, we don't often see things the same way. I mean, uh, we are though getting to this weird point in our relationship where one of us will just have a thought, like you'll just be sitting there thinking about something and the other one will be like, you know, I was just thinking about it. Maybe we should go to the zoo soon or we should have pizza tonight. And the other one's like, no way, I literally was just thinking that. And so we, we do have that, but even with that, we don't see things the exact same way. I mean, for example, I, I, I think when you say you did the laundry, uh, what you mean by that is that you washed, dried, folded, and put the clothes away. Now, I don't wanna throw my dear wife under the bus and she's not here, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> but let me just say, when she says she did the laundry, it doesn't involve all of those steps that I just mentioned, um, but that's okay. We can still be united. We still have mutual love and respect among each other. It just means we have a difference of opinion when you say, I did the laundry today, right? You see, one of the things that's amazing about this chapter here in chapter 14 is that Paul makes it clear that he thinks that the weak Christians are actually wrong in their belief about food and about these sacred days. And yet, even still, he over and over again defends their right to have that opinion and to live by their own convictions. You see, for Paul, when it came to disputable matters, he believed that unity was more important than uniformity. And the thing is, I'm just worried that we're in this moment in our society, and unfortunately, this mindset has started to creep into the church 
where, and the mindset and the posture is this, that, that, that people think that they can't, uh, that they can only surround themselves with people who think exactly the way that they think or who believe exactly what they believe. And if someone has a different view or a different opinion, then we can't be friends anymore. Or I can't trust you or I can't be united with you. And yet what Paul shows us here in Romans 14 is that that's simply not true. Now, again, we have to keep in mind here the context. Paul is talking about disputable matters or, in other words, non-essentials to the Christian faith. I mean, all you have to do is to read the book of Galatians to see that Paul has no problem rebuking someone or cutting someone off, uh, cutting off unity with someone who distorts essential doctrines. Things like the gospel, the, the way of salvation. I mean, he even goes so far in the book of Galatians that he, he tells this group who is distorting the gospel that he wishes that they would, you know, just go on and emasculate themselves. Like, that's some pretty tough language. Like, I'm not sure I would say that to someone, but Paul does, and it's in the scriptures. And so, again, he is clear about what is worth dividing over. But as we see here with this, when it comes to disputable matters, he says that it's better to stay united and to let someone live by their own convictions than to divide from them, even when you think that they are wrong. Again, that's why he says there at the end of verse five, he says, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And on this point, I really like uh, this Christian quote. It's, you know, it's a Christian quote that's been around for probably hundreds of years, but nobody knows who the original person was who said it, but it really captures this. It's this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And on that idea, another thing that we see here in this passage in regards to what does Christian unity look like, I, I think what we see here is that what it looks like is that we are to accept and to welcome those we disagree with. Again, the, or again, verse one says, accept the one whose faith is weak. The ESV says, welcome them. And as you work through the passage, what you see is that practically what it looks like to welcome or accept someone that you disagree with is first off to not quarrel with them. Now, I don't think that that means that you can't have a discussion or that you can't talk about or share your own convictions or beliefs on a certain topic. But discussing something and sharing your own convictions is different than quarreling over them. And I think all of us deep down know the difference. Like, I think we know when we have moved from discussing something to quarreling about it. You see, when you move into that place of quarreling about something, you get defensive, you get agitated. Maybe even you get a little angry. And what happens is you move from just simply trying to help a person understand you better or understand what you believe and why you believe to a place where you are all, uh, where you're all out to win the debate and you're, out, you're willing to win it at all costs. As well, when you're quarreling with someone, one of the things that typically happens is you stop giving them the benefit of the doubt. And instead you try to catch every misspoken word or every little hole in their logical argument in order to prove them wrong. And certainly, and, and so certainly this is, this is part of what it means to accept each other. We are to not quarrel with them. But some other things that we see here in the passage is that for the weak person, they are told to not judge the strong. However, though, the strong person is told to not condemn or to show contempt for the weak. 
Again, verse 3 tells us this. It says, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. And the reason that Paul tells us not to do this, the reason that we are not to judge or show uh, contempt to each other, is because you and I are ultimately not the judge. And because of that, people don't ultimately report to us. Again, he says in verse 4, he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Later on in the passage, he comes back to this point in verse 10, and he writes this, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge me. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. See, what Paul is saying here is that the reason you and I are to accept each other, the reason we are to welcome each other in our differences is because each of us has to live according to our convictions, according to our conscience. And with that, each of us are going to stand before the Lord and we are going to give an account for how we lived our lives. And so because of that, we are to, as it says there in verse 13, we are to stop passing judgment on one another. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He actually goes a, a step farther in this. If we keep reading verse 13, he says, Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Skipping down to verse 19, he says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better to not eat meat or to drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, I know that was a lot of verses, and I'm not sure if you tracked with what Paul was saying there, but what he was saying was super radical. And not only was it radical, but I think for most of us, we really dislike what he just said. Like this is one of those sections of scripture that we tend to skip over or pretend like it's not there. You see, what Paul just said is that there are times when it is necessary for you and for me to lay down or to limit our liberties for the sake of another. Or as another pastor I listened to this week put it, he said, there are times when we are to prioritize our brother's spiritual health over our freedom. Now, I know for some of you, your blood pressure just shot up as I read that or as I said that. And especially, I mean, for us as Americans, this is a hard pill to swallow. Everything in us has been taught to fight for the opposite of that, to fight at all costs, to keep our individual freedom and liberty. And yet what Paul just says here is that for the sake of love and for the sake of our fellow Christians, there may be times when you and I need to limit or lay down a freedom. One commentator put it like this. He said, Paul's quarrel here is that even though the strong rightly have freedom, 
The strong have not used that liberty and service to what is more important, and that is love. Paul seems to think that division and strife in these groups seriously can affect their spiritual development. Indeed, it can destroy their faith. And the strong seem unconcerned about this. However, though, this is Paul's biggest concern. For the sake of being right over a matter of personal piety, one group has abandoned the other group, going so far as to destroy their faith. The correct question here is not what can we do, it's what should we do. And for Paul, the answer is glaringly obvious. Whatever encourages and edifies our brothers and sisters takes absolute priority over our preferences. And so let me just try to sum up here what we've said so far on this first question. In terms of what does Christian unity look like and how do we strive for it? The first thing we said was that unity doesn't have to mean uniformity. Again, there's room for differences of opinion on secondary issues or on what Paul calls disputable matters. Next, we said that unity looks like welcoming and ex accepting each other even in our differences. And with that, we said part of accepting each other is not quarreling with those we disagree with. And with that, we tried to talk about the difference between sharing our own thoughts and our own convictions versus fighting and quarreling over them. The other thing we talked about was in terms of accepting each other is that we're not to judge or to treat each other with contempt. And the reason for that is because all of us will stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives. And therefore, we're not to judge or to condemn each other over disputable matters. And then from there, we talked about this radical step, this radical command even from Paul, where he tells us that there are times where we need to limit or lay down our liberties in order to be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that with that, we are to prioritize their spiritual health over our freedom. And that as part of that, we are to pursue those things that lead to peace, that lead to mutual edification. And so that's just a little bit uh, on what Christian unity looks like and how to strive for it. Let's go to this second question, which is why strive for it? Why fight for unity? I mean, unity is hard. Why, why strive for it? Well, the first reason you and I should strive for unity is very simply because we're commanded to, right? Like whenever the Bible commands something, it's always a good idea for Christians to obey it. And in verse 19, Paul said again, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. As well, Paul in the book of Ephesians, which if you've been going with us in this series, we've referenced Ephesians a lot. And that's because it's a book that deals with uh, talking about the church. But in there, Paul talks about unity. And specifically in chapter four, verse one, he says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so again, just very clearly, why should you and I strive for unity? Well, we should strive for it because we're commanded to. A second reason, though, as to why we should strive for unity is because we won't naturally default into it. No, you see, by nature, all of us are selfish. All of us want others to bend to our thoughts, to our opinions. And so because of that, we're kidding ourselves if we think that unity will just happen on its own. That again, we'll sort of just fall into it or default into it. No, that's not what will happen. 
which is why Paul in both Romans and Ephesians, he very much emphasizes, he says, make every effort to do what leads to peace. Make every effort to do, uh, to keep the unity of the spirit. You see, unity, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes commitment on our part. And it takes us dying to ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't a work that we do alone. This isn't, you know, sort of just pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of, uh, kind of work. No, this is something that happens and is accomplished through the Holy Spirit working through us. You see, as you and I, as we look to Christ, as we submit our lives and our wills to him and to his word, then the Spirit is able to work through us to accomplish this work of unity. In one book I read this week on unity called Divided We Fall by Luther Whitlock, he said it this way. He said, the most important step in building bridges toward unity and community is growing closer to God. And that's so true. You see, some of us, I think we need to open our Bible app more and our Facebook app less, right? Because it's only as we grow closer to God that you and I will be then filled with the Spirit and then we can live out and follow the commands of Jesus. And so again, why strive for unity? Well, because again, it just won't happen on its own. Another reason though as to why strive for unity is because disunity has real consequences. Again, if you remember what I said earlier or what we read earlier in Romans 14, Paul says there that disunity can cause brothers and sisters to stumble. Which what I think that means, at least part of what it means is that we can end up hurting or wounding each other. But he also says there that in some cases, disunity can even destroy someone else's faith. I mean, I don't know about you, but as I, you know, I've been following the Lord now, I think 16, 17 years. It's hard to do math once I get past the teens, but uh, some, somewhere in there. And, and, and because I've been following the Lord for that amount of time, I can certainly think of some examples in my life of people who have been wounded and hurt by something that a fellow believer said or did. And in some cases, even that's been a part of why some of them have walked away from the faith altogether. And so because of that, again, Paul says, guys, look, there are serious consequences to disunity. And here's the thing that's really hard and tricky about the day and age that you and I are living in. And what's hard and tricky is that because of social media, you and I might be causing disunity or causing someone to stumble with what we are posting without even realizing it. We may think to ourselves, oh, I'm just innocently sharing my thoughts, my opinions on this or that subject. But meanwhile, without realizing it, we are hurting and we are offending our fellow Christian. And because of that, we're causing them to stumble. And here's the thing. I mean, most of the time in this kind of scenario, the thing someone is posting about is something that falls into this category of disputable matters or opinions. I mean, it's not like most people are out there posting something where they're defending the deity of Christ or the gospel or the resurrection or something like that. No, it's usually around something that is their opinion about a topic that the Bible has not made clear. Now, having said that, I think that according to this passage of Romans 14, there is responsibility on both sides. You see, the person who posts something, they, uh, or who shares their opinion about something, they have a responsibility to be careful with what they say or how they say it. And they also have the responsibility to be careful not to condemn or have contempt towards those who disagree with them. And because of that, because of this risk here, uh, they should also definitely consider giving up their right to post uh, on anything that comes into their mind. 
if it will, if it'll avoid disunity or causing someone else to stumble. But if after walking through that step, they still come to the, the, the conclusion that they should or that it's okay to post something on a disputable matter, again, you're gonna have to live by your own conviction on that. Or let's say they, they just, again, they didn't think about it, but they posted something and, and it, it turns out that it ended up offending someone or causing them to stumble. Then that other person, so, so the person who posts something has a responsibility, but the person who reads something also has a responsibility. And their responsibility is to always believe the best about others. It's to give the benefit of the doubt. It's to not jump to conclusions or make assumptions that you can't verify. And we're just so prone to this. Like you read something, you just think, man, I bet that person is this and that. And, you know, they probably do this and that, you know, some horrible thing. Like, like I read, one of the articles I read this week was like, whatever happened to grace? And the guy just went on to talk about like, is that like not a thing anymore? Do we not ha have grace in the Christian community? No, you need to believe the best. You need to give the benefit of the doubt, not jump to conclusions, not make assumptions. And not only that, this is another really important step. If you are hurt, if you are wounded by something uh, that, that someone has shared, then according to the Bible, you have the responsibility to approach that fellow brother or sister in Christ and to let them know. I mean, Jesus makes this really clear in Matthew 18. He says this, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. You see, again, if you're the one who feels sinned against or uh, what the Bible would say is that you have a responsibility to approach that fellow Christian and to point it out to them and to talk about exactly how they hurt you and, and either give them an opportunity to repent or to explain. Uh, maybe there's, you know, so often it's just a miscommunication. They, you read into what they were saying or they misspoke and what they were saying. But if you don't ever approach them, then you never have that opportunity to make things right. You see, unfortunately, all too often people feel hurt or they feel sinned against and they just stay silent. They end up just being quiet and growing bitter inside. Or maybe they just leave altogether. They change life groups or they unfriend someone on Facebook or they go to a different church. What, whatever it is, they just end up walking away without doing this step of approaching them and letting them know their fault. And yet that's not what the Lord would have us to do. No, the Lord wants you and I to fight for unity. And so again, why strive for unity? Well, because disunity has real consequences. A fourth reason is because unity among Christians has a missional effect on non-believers. Jesus talks about this in both John 13 and John 17. In John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. As well, later on in John 17, uh, Jesus is, and this is part of his high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, he prays that his disciples would be united, that they would become one. But then in verse 20, he switches from them and he begins to pray for all Christians of all time. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Guess what? That's you and me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is praying for us. And here's what he says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, 
that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you love them even as you have loved me. You see, here's the deal. Disunity and quarreling is really unattractive to others. I remember when Faith and I were first dating, uh, we had some close friends at the time who were already married. They were, I think, one or two years into marriage. And so we would spend a lot of time with them. They were kind of mentoring us a little bit. But um, when we would hang out with them, the husband and wife would just bicker and argue back and forth all the time. And it was always over really stupid things. I mean, this is a made-up example, but this would, would have been typical of what we would have experienced, you know. The, the wife would be in the middle of a story, and she would say something like, yeah, we were at this party, and there were a ton of people there. And then the husband would jump in and interrupt her, and he'd cut her. He, no, there weren't. There weren't a ton of people there. There were only five people there. And then she would say, no, no, I, there, there were at least seven people there. I remember I counted them. No, you're wrong. There were five. And it's just like, meanwhile, Faith and I are just standing there like, what is happening right now? This is so awkward. Who cares how many people were there? It doesn't impact the story. Just go, get on with it, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, man, I really hope that if Faith and I get married, we don't act or look like that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to sign up for a life of arguing and bickering every day. And, and thankfully, our marriage doesn't look like that. But again, the point I'm trying to make here is that Jesus is telling us our love and our unity with each other it is missional. It's evangelistic. It's a signpost to non-Christians, which in some way shows them that we are Jesus' disciples and that God the Father has sent Jesus into this world to rescue us. And so why strive for unity? Well, because according to Jesus, it has a missional effect on non-Christians. Lastly, though, let me just share with you one last reason as to why you and I should care about unity and why we should strive for it. And that is because it brings God glory. At the beginning of chapter 15, Paul is still very much in this conversation on unity. And, and in verse 1, he says this, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Each of us should, should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Skipping down to verse 5, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. Why? So that in order you can bring praise to God. You see, when you and I, when we strive for unity, when we fight for unity, even when it's hard, even when it feels impossible, the result is, is that we bring praise and glory to God. And that, my friends, is why you and I were created. We were created to bring praise and glory to our creator. And when we strive for unity, when we fight for it, we accomplish that. I don't know if this is quite the right way to think about it. No analogy ever is perfect, but it, it's a little bit like uh, I'm a father. I have four children. And in one of those rare moments when they're actually playing together without fighting, you know, no one's yelling, no one's, you know, tattletelling. And, and it's just Faith and I are upstairs and we hear them in the basement and there's laughter and, and it just sounds like they're getting along. 
in that moment, there's a glory that I feel as a father. There's a, a joy that I feel in that moment. And in the same way, when we get along as God's children, he too, in a much more deserved way, receives glory and praise and joy. And so these are five reasons why you and I should strive for unity. And so by way of application here, I just, I just want to walk us through a series of self-reflecting questions in order just to gauge how we're doing at this, to, to take a little temperature check. Now, don't answer out loud because that might get awkward, but um, maybe just write them down. Or actually, I think they're in the Bible app and you may want to go home later today or later this week and just go over them and just spend some time with the Lord and just, again, do an honest reflection. Like, how am I doing at this? The first question here is this. On a scale of one to 10, how high of a priority has maintaining Christian unity been for you this last year? With one being not at all and 10 being it's a top priority. Number two, in this last year, have you noticed in your own life an increase in conversations where you are quarreling with other Christians? Maybe you would say, no, I, I don't feel like I have. I've stayed in my bunker and I've not seen another human in <laughs> nine months. Good for you. Um, the rest of us, though, this is probably true. And, and so with that, I want you to ask yourself, why is that the case? In other words, what's behind that? Like, is fear behind that? Is that why we're all digging our heels in? Because we're actually filled with fear and not faith? And so maybe do some, some self-evaluation there. And also ask yourself, has these quarrels been primarily over essential tenets of the Christian faith? Or have they been in what's considered disputable matters? Now here's the hard thing. People argue over what's a disputable matter. And so you're gonna have to figure that out. But uh, I, I would usually say, if you can point to a chapter and a verse, you're usually safe. Um, unless it's on baptism and then there's a whole mess with that. But uh, in general, you know, you, you know the difference between a disputable matter and a core Christian tenet of our faith. Number three, when you are in a conversation with a fellow believer where you disagree, how do you typically do it being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? How do you do it believing the best and not jumping to conclusions like we talked about earlier? You can just ask yourself, again, I, just honest reflection. Like when I'm in that moment and it's starting to get a little heated, do I begin, do I keep believing the best or do, do I let my mind go somewhere that's not fair? Number four, as you think about unity and accepting those you disagree with, evaluate your social media habits. Do you often post your opinions on controversial or disputable matters? Do you evaluate what you post in terms of how it will build others up? how it will lead to peace or mutual edification. In other words, I just wanna ask all of us to just self-evaluate. Am I running through a filter everything that I post? And am I asking myself, does this, will this lead to peace? Will this lead to mutual edification? Is this worth causing someone to stumble over it? Now, if you wanna argue about who's the greatest basketball player of all time, LeBron, Kobe, Jordan, it's a, go ahead. But we all know it's Jordan, so just you don't waste your time. Or if you want to argue over, should I keep the mustache or shave it off? That's fine. It's a disputable matter in my household. Um, that, that kind of stuff's okay. Number five, lastly here. How willing are you to give up or limit your liberty or your freedom in order to love a fellow brother or sister? You see, this is where the rubber meets the road. 
It's all fine to think about this in theory, but when it actually comes to sacrificing for another, this is where, again, the rubber meets the road. And so, you know, ask yourself this. You know, it's funny with this one, there used to be, you know, when Romans 14 has been taught in the past, it's always been, you know, people just end up talking about drinking alcohol. And, you know, it's like, should I or should I not? And, and that whole thing. But again, we're kind of in a day and age where there's a lot of things that we could be applying here with this chapter. And so I just want you to think about, I'm not gonna give any specifics, but just think about, are you willing to limit your liberty and your freedom in order to love a fellow brother or sister well? Now, those are some tough questions. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I've already this week, I've been wrestling with this stuff and I'm gonna spend some more time thinking about my own life because um, the, the reality is, is I, I've struggled with this as well these last however many months, nine months or whatever it is. But I thought to close here, I thought we could take communion together as a body. And so hopefully you had a chance to grab that. If not, they should just be outside the doors there. Because here's the thing, communion is a unifying act. I mean, this is crazy. For 2000 years, Christians all over the world of all time have been centering themselves around the bread and the cup. And we get to join in with them by taking this communion together. But not only that, when we take this together as a body, as Limworth Road Church, we are also being united as one body. Not only that though, communion reminds us of the forgiveness and the grace that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. I mean, as I just said, the, the reality is, is that all of us fall short in this area of unity. As I just told you, I myself have had multiple moments where I've blown it. Moments where I've been quarreling with others. And, and so I too need to be reminded of Jesus's grace and his forgiveness. And really the only way that you and I are gonna be able to live this out is by remembering the gospel, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, one of the verses we looked at earlier in Romans 15, I think it's verse seven, Paul there says, accept each other. Why? Because Christ has accepted you. And so again, we need to remember that in Jesus, in his death, on the cross and in his resurrection, we have been accepted. And so let's go ahead and remember his death by taking the bread and the cup. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread now. He goes on, he says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that it is a double-edged sword, that it cuts us, that it divides us and it gets down to those, those deep parts of our hearts. And Lord, if we're just being honest, sometimes your word is hard to obey. Sometimes it, it, it feels, uh, it would just be easier to give up or something. And yet, Lord, you have empowered your church, you've empowered your people through your spirit. And so, Father, I just pray that your spirit would help all of us, all of us to be able to obey your word in this area. That, God, you would give us renewed strength to fight for unity, to strive for it. 
Thank you, Lord, for those that, that uh, have uh, demonstrated this, Lord. Pray that you would help all of us to, again, to just be able to fight for this, Lord. It brings you glory when we are united. It says in, I think, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And so, Jesus, by your grace and through your spirit, would you allow us to do that as a body, both here as a local church, but also uh, as the church universal, as we, uh, even here in Columbus, look for ways to unite and to love fellow churches and Christians in our community. And so, Lord, would you give us grace to do that? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you will, go ahead and stand. We're going to close with a final blessing. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hope and trust that it's been able to be a blessing for you. Um, if you didn't agree with anything I shared, uh, uh, just remember what we talked about, okay? <laughs> um, let me close here with Romans 15. And we've already read this verse, but it's a, a very closing benediction and a blessing. And you can raise your hands so as to receive it. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.